Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to the Mac Emerge podcast. Once again, my name is Kevin Dong, and in this segment, I have Dr. Ari Greenwald, an emergency medicine physician working at the Hamilton Health Sciences. He gives us a recording of his thoughts and reflections on the coronavirus. Currently, we are in an extremely difficult and challenging time in our lives. COVID-19 caused by coronavirus has become a pandemic and it is affecting every aspect of our daily life. In healthcare, it has caused extreme and radical changes to our practices and it has produced a lot of anxiety and confusion. Hot topics such as donning and duffing of personal protective equipment or PPE, or keeping safe during high-risk procedures like intubations, or triaging potential cases, lacking resources and equipment. These are all challenges that we're going through daily as this keeps evolving. Many of you listening, like myself, are anxious, scared, perhaps angry. Why is this happening? Is this going to affect my practice and where I work? Am I safe? Will my friends and family be safe? This recording by Dr. Greenwald has similar thoughts and concerns, but he really goes into how we as a group can mentally and physically fight and battle through these challenges. Together, we can fight this thing one step at a time. Remember to be safe, wash your hands, respect others, practice social distancing, and advocate for the public to do the same. Hope you enjoyed this segment, and thanks again, Dr. Greenwald, for this awesome recording. So I just wanted to share some thoughts after coming out of my last shift. I've been through quite a up and down ride, as I'm sure you all have over the last several days, for me at least, maybe weeks for some of you as coming to realize the gravity of what's about to come and the fact that we are seemingly completely unprepared. I'll be honest, the shift before that I was working, I felt a great deal of angst and uh, anger about uh, towards our leadership, frustration for not preparing us properly for this from every level, the government level, public health level, ministry of health level, uh, even hospital level. I felt like there was a great deal of mismanagement and misinformation and confusion and changing guidelines. And it left me feeling very frustrated. And yesterday's shift, uh, the day before, I shared all that frustration with the nurses and we kind of shared that moment together. And there was some peace that came with that in that shared moment of frustration. And I came into the shift last night kind of feeling like we're going to be, you know, feeling that together again. And, and as I was coming in, I, I started to think to myself, you know what, it's it's kind of nice to know that we're not all going through this by ourselves. Like it, sometimes it feels like we're all experiencing this degree of anger and emotional, uh, you know, frustration and, and 
you know, and, and fear, you know, for ourselves, for our families, for our patients, for our country, for our communities. And, and then I, I began to feel a great deal of the heaviness kind of lifted a little bit when I started to realize that, you know, what, we're all sharing this feeling together. It's not about who was wrong and who was right. The reality of the situation is that we all completely misunderstood how amazing this virus was at doing what it does. Um, we all made mistakes. Uh, we were all relying on misinformation. We were all part of that process, every single one of us. And it's not because we weren't trying. It's not because, you know, we were purposely missing things. It's because I think we thought we knew more than we knew. And there was a certain lack of humility that I think we all share. Recognizing now that, you know, we know much less than we thought we knew, I think is an important step. And then also recognizing that it's sharing that burden and also sharing the fact that we're all going through this together that can be the beginning of bringing us to a place where we can have some degree uh, of unity. And, 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 and I got to that point before coming to my shift yesterday. And then on my shift, I started having this whole new appreciation for the team of people that we have on the front lines. And the fact that I'm sharing this experience with all of you and all these people on the front lines this tsunami that is going to be coming at us. I feel like there is nobody I'd rather be on the front lines with. And I feel like we have great people who I think over the last little while may have felt a little bit down about the system and how things are working and things weighing us down and inefficiencies. And I feel like now, you know, that we're really, you know, stepping into high gear with fantastic, excellent leadership who are doing great things and things are changing dynamically hour to hour, minute to minute, day to day, but with great leadership and great people and, and nimble, efficient movements, I feel like our, what we were trained to do is going to shine. And we were all trained to be calm in the face of chaos and to manage situations where it seems like a complete clusterfuck and that's what we thrive doing that's what emergency medicine is all about it's all about managing that chaos and we are going to be sitting in the biggest clusterfuck of clusterfucks that has ever existed has ever faced uh, modern day medicine and we're going to be at the front lines of that with great people and great leadership and I feel like uh, we are up for that challenge and it's going to be hard and we're going to have difficult days and we're going to have losses and, and, and we're not going to win every battle. But knowing that we're there together on the front lines and, and knowing that we're there with great people and great leaders uh, and great skills and, and being able to uh, act in ways that are efficient and nimble and, and really uh, allow our skill set our essential skill set as emergency physicians and, and emergency response providers allow that to shine and working alongside other emergency response providers and other healthcare professionals um, who are going to come up and step up. That to me is a very exciting time, um, as difficult as it's going to be, and it's going to bring out the best and it's going to bring out the worst. But I'm looking forward to seeing the best that we have to bring forth and looking forward to being there with you all and, and for each other. Thank you all for the journey we're about to uh, embark on together. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Thank you everyone for joining in. Before we dig into the Residence Corner episode for this month, I want to take a couple of minutes 
and highlight a very important advocacy initiative by one of our very own residents, Dr. Kyle Sakeli, and a team of medical students, Yana Balakumaran and Adam Dovidio. As a healthcare provider, you're probably very aware of the dreaded reality that we may very soon run out of personal protective equipment for healthcare providers in our hospitals. As a resident healthcare provider myself, that is absolutely terrifying. How can we protect the public this way? Well, Kyle, one of my core residents and a current PGY2 in our emergency medicine program at McMaster University, together with a group of medical student volunteers, could not stay dormant any longer and decided to do something about it. Kyle, Jaina, and Adam, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell me a little bit about how this initiative actually started, Kyle? What actually gave you the idea? Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having us, Joanna. Uh, and Jana is actually one of our incoming MAC ER residents, so an official welcome to Jana to our uh, program. Um, so, yeah, I guess a little bit about how this got started. So I've been stuck in self-isolation now for a few days because of recent travel. And then early last week, uh, one of my good friends in general surgery here at McMaster, Chris Griffiths, uh, rightfully sort of expressed to me the need for this uh, Canadian wartime-like mobilization of resources to fight COVID, uh, particularly mobilization of PPE and, and ventilators. So he was the one that kind of lit the fire under my bum. And then I actually knew uh, several uh, non-healthcare uh, friends and, and family close to me who had purchased N95s and, and surgical masks um, in the last several weeks. And so I figured, you know, if I personally knew more than one non-healthcare worker that owned PPE, then I figured there must be tons of people out there in the community uh, with PPE not being put to use. So I made the Facebook post calling for donations of PPE. I put together a group of very solid medical students, and the rest is history. A sad reality, unfortunately, that we're all living in these last few days with the COVID-19 pandemic and the fear that comes with that from the general public in terms of personal protective equipment and trying to, for lack of better words, access or hoard them. Thank you very much for starting this off. It's extremely important, and we know from the healthcare perspective how valuable this is to protect us and therefore protect the public in what's coming in the next few days, potentially. Now, here with us, we also have Adam and Jaina, medical student volunteers, extraordinaires, if I may say so. And we very much appreciate you guys for being part of the COVID-19 pandemic response through all this and specifically helping out with these initiatives. Adam. Tell us a little bit, if I was in a position to donate some personal protective equipment, how or who would I contact in this situation? Uh, well, Joanna, that's a great question. Uh, if you wanted to donate to our PPE drive specifically, uh, you could email us. That's how most of the uh, communication has been so far. And our email is uh, covidmasksontario at gmail.com. Uh, we're currently working on some uh, donation pages on social media to make it maybe easier to, to contact us. Once you've emailed us, you answer a couple questions, and then we connect you with one of our volunteer drivers who would come and pick up the materials. Our drivers are kind of gathering things from all over the greater Toronto-Hamilton area right now, 
Um, if anyone's listening from outside of this area, I know there are other PPE drives happening all over Canada, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Vancouver. So you can likely find their information as well out there. Yeah, and important for our listeners to know that when this uh, podcast is launched in the show notes, we will include all this information regarding who to contact for the PPE drive specifically here in the Greater Toronto Area in Hamilton, but also some of the other drives out there that we're aware of. And certainly everyone can use your help, as you can tell. Now, Jaina, tell us a little bit about some of the places that you're receiving donations from. Or rather, where do you anticipate these donations to be coming from with regards to personal protective equipment from the community? So, so far we've been getting donations from two sort of groups. The first group is local businesses, uh, places like dental offices, clinics, tattoo parlors, and nail salons that all have excess uh, masks and gloves that they have to donate since they're now closed. The second group is the general public who have overstocked on PPE, including facial masks and gloves. And we've received a lot of generosity from both groups. Looking forward, uh, we're hoping to continue to receive donations from both groups. It's nice to see that businesses have stepped up to the challenge, for lack of better words, and the general public is sharing our concerns with regards to running out of personal protective equipment for uh, healthcare providers in the very near future, correct? Yes, totally. Now, if we can switch gears a little bit. So let's say I have masks at home or in my dental clinic. Can I donate any type of facial mask or personal protective equipment? Do they have to be a certain material, a certain grade? How do I know if this is actually what is needed? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, Joanna. Um, and it's you know the answer is obviously evolving and, and changing every day as we learn more and more about uh, COVID nineteen. With respect to face masks, we're looking for NIOSH or N I O S H approved N ninety fives and uh, A S T M certified surgical masks. What I do want to tell the public, though, is I don't want them to fret over or be concerned whether or not their uh, mask is appropriate for donation. I'd like them to just go ahead and email us and we can do the hard part and figure out whether or not these masks are suitable for use in the hospital. There have also been many, many offers from the community for home-sewn masks or homemade masks. And uh, it's really endearing to get all of these offers. And I always feel bad when I have to tell them that, unfortunately, uh, the evidence, at least the evidence that we're following, doesn't support the use of homemade masks, at least today. Important to recognize that that could potentially change. And so that's part of the reason why we want you guys to be in touch with us. And it is very much endearing. I've had family members and great friends who have volunteered and personally contacted me to make uh, you know, homemade masks for the healthcare providers. But unfortunately, at this time, it seems like that's not necessarily a useful resource, but that may change. And as Kyle alluded to, I know personally that there's other organizations out there that may not necessarily be primary healthcare providers, but other um, people who are involved in the COVID-19 pandemic that may potentially use those resources. So please do keep in touch with us. 
Guys, thank you so, so much for all your hard work and the initiative. For our listeners, we will also put up the contact information uh, for these guys, their PPE drive, but also contact information for the other drives out there that we're aware of. Feel free to email us if you have any questions um, or require any further information. Thanks, guys. Thank you for all your work you've done so far. Uh, Very much humbling and very inspiring. Thanks for having us, Joanna, and uh, stay safe at work. Wash your hands. That's right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Hal. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we have a unique Residence Corner episode for you in the face of the coronavirus-19 pandemic. Loren, one of our chiefs for the FRCP Emergency Medicine Program here at McMaster University, has kindly agreed to talk to us about some of the adaptations that our program is taking in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Loren, thank you, thank you so much for all the work you've done so far on behalf of the residents, the clerks, the medical students, and others to support ongoing medical education and trainee support specifically during the current pandemic of coronavirus. We'll start off a little bit with an introduction and have Loren tell us a little bit about the current changes being made to the academic half-day at McMaster Emergency Medicine Program. Loren, take it away. Thanks, Joanna, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to explain a little bit about what we've been doing and the changes we've been making. So um, we were sort of thinking about the need to move to a virtual platform even before there were official cancellations at the university level and uh, at the citywide level. And uh, we actually had no missed academic programming and uh, had our first academic half day using a virtual platform. Thank you, mostly to the hard work of um Teresa Valera and uh, Julius Morelli, who were able to get it all set up for us in no time. Um, So we've been using Zoom for a virtual half day and a couple of little bumps in the road, but I think overall went pretty well for our first week. Yeah, I absolutely agree. As someone who was participating uh, in the virtual academic half day for the first time in my life, I'd say other than those couple bumps and, you know, the expected learning curve, I think everybody adapted pretty well. And it's pretty remarkable, like you said, that we haven't actually missed any sessions um, given everything going on yet, but also add a, a specific session around the topic of coronavirus, correct? Yeah, for sure. Um, Through the um, generosity of Dr. Dominic Mertz, who's one of our IPAC physicians at HHS, he was actually able to come and provide us with an hour of his time for a QA and a style um, session where uh, most of the questions were submitted in advance and uh, we had some time for extra questions as well. But I think that that was also a very valuable uh, session for for residents and faculty alike to to sort of hear it straight from uh, one of our IPAC physicians who's got an enormous role in in leading our response to this. Very helpful indeed. Now switching gears a little bit, tell us a little bit, Lorraine, about some of the initiatives that are currently being undertaken to deal with the dissemination of information to the residents. That communication piece that we know is so vital during times like these. Uh, absolutely, Joanna. So um, definitely, I think that we all feel a little bit better, um, even in the face of uncertainty, if if we at least feel like um, whatever information is available is being communicated to us. 
as eMERGE residents, we're sort of in a unique position in that a lot of our administration and a lot of our faculty are directly involved in contingency planning and surge planning uh, at a hospital level. So it makes it a little bit easier because we sort of have um, a foot in the door and, and get some of that information very directly. But it also can make it a little bit more challenging because a lot of our faculty are super, super busy um, trying to respond to this clinically. Um, as always, uh, our program director and assistant program director, Aleem and Kelly, have been um, super, super available to uh, residents and definitely to Alvin and I uh, as chiefs. So we've had direct contact with them throughout and lots and lots of phone calls. Um, and uh, we've actually appointed a, a resident lead um, who is Dr. Farah Jazuli, um, who has some extra training in disaster medicine um, and so is lending her expertise to be sort of a bi-directional conduit of information between uh, administration and the resident group as well, and trying to answer as many sort of practical questions and clinical questions as, as she's able. And I think she's really done a fabulous job with that. As part of Farah's role, um, we have a couple of new WhatsApp groups that we've started. Um, one that uh, Farah posts to daily, and it's just sort of an update channel. So um, for all of the residents in the FR and CCFP programs, um, they can join and uh, on that channel, uh, Farah just sort of distills all of the most important updates for us uh, in that way. Um, there's also a new WhatsApp group that we're using as sort of a, a place to focus all of our questions regarding COVID and um, sort of have a little bit of transparency within ourselves to be able to see sort of if questions are repeated and and sort of what other people are interested in knowing. Aleem and Farah have created a Dropbox folder also with some curated information pertaining to uh, COVID-19 in terms of um, infection control directives as well as clinical information as it kind of comes available. Um, so those things, I think, have been hugely helpful to the resident group. And then as part of our weekly half day moving forward and uh, starting last week, we have sort of a brief um, resident town hall and then some time to uh, bombard Aleem with questions as well. Um, so that's been, I think, and will continue to be an excellent resource for, uh, for our group. Various avenues in place to support the residents as much as we can during this time, of course, as we can tell. Um, the other piece um, to add is that, you know, residents are often uh, in different, going through different rotations, whether you are in your home service or off service. Uh, and so the questions always that come up during these times like these involve not only uh, how do I provide the best care in the time of a pandemic, but also the logistical questions. So really, really key to have both residents involvement, but also our fabulous um, administrative staff and program director and assistant directors involved in this. So as many of you are aware, medical students, both pre-clerks and clerks, have discontinued their clinical rotations. Now, I'm personally aware of a lot of current initiatives taken to support our medical students in collaboration with the undergraduate medical education, but maybe Loren can summarize some of those initiatives for us that I know you've been either directly involved with, uh, spearheaded, or supported uh, faculty uh, with leading these initiatives. 
Yeah, for sure, Joanna. So I won't uh, I won't take credit for really any of these, but um, certainly our group has been very involved in this. There's a few things going on that I'm aware of. So um, one uh, initiative is that we've been in touch with the uh, undergraduate medical education office as well as their electives coordinator, and uh, we've sort of broadened um, the ability of some of our senior residents who are interested in medical education to participate as preceptors for uh, reading electives for clerks. So our names are sort of on that list and being circulated um, as well. And and I know that some people have already actually been contacted and started up conversations with some clerks about reading electives moving forward. So um, that's awesome. And that's been done really um, thanks to the gracious help of some of our faculty who have agreed to be the sort of oversight to make sure that nothing goes totally off the rails with senior residents overseeing these reading projects. So huge thanks to Dr. Leanne Shipday, Dr. Sean Mondu, Dr. Leem Naji and Dr. Kevin Dong for their their help in supporting us with that. Furthermore, I know there um, are other sort of PBL groups and things that have gone virtual as well. So um, there's going to be a series of sort of AMA or Ask Me Anything sessions with some faculty for clerks that um, can kind of talk about various topics in emergency medicine, as well as some PBL um, sort of chats that are are going on via Slack. So lots of people uh, leveraging all of the awesome technology that's available to us and being able to communicate that way. Um, I also want to give a huge shout out to an initiative um, from um, medical students and other healthcare students from across the distributed campuses as well as here in Hamilton for an initiative that they have taken up of sort of their own um, volition and without prompting from anybody, but um, providing help with things like childcare, groceries, um, et cetera, for frontline um, uh, hospital workers and healthcare providers uh, during a time of, of definitely increased stress on households. So that's awesome. And if you're listening and you need help with any of those things, you can uh, have a look at my Twitter, which is at Loren, M-C-C-H-A-I-M. Um, and there's a link somewhere in there for a Google sheet that you can fill out if you're looking for assistance. Amazing. Amazing to see that both medical education initiatives have continued and also evolved with the changing situation that we're currently facing, but also the community initiatives and the cohesiveness uh, that we are seeing around our own community and beyond our community. Just an FYI, on our show notes for the podcast, we'll also have links to all of these resources and or initiatives that Loren has kindly reviewed for us. Well, Loren, again, on behalf of the residents, medical students, and other listeners, thank you so much for all your work, your help, and your availability to us. I can certainly speak from the residents' perspective that you've been a huge help in supporting us moving forward. Thank you again for being here. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for including me. And thank you to you guys for being such uh, smart and uh, lovely people in general. Makes it easy to to do all I won't take stuff. credit for the rest of them, but absolutely. Sounds great. Uh, thanks, Loren. All right. So thank you very much for agreeing to meet with me. It's really exciting to have someone from... Harvard University, come and visit us up here. Uh, we're really excited to host a speaker of your caliber um, and long career in emergency medicine. And so I, I thought I would like to talk to you at first about your your um, your topic of interest today, which um, I think is one that's very interesting to a lot of people and very clinically relevant. 
but then I think that we can also maybe head into some questions about how to have a great career in emergency medicine in general, which I think having looked at all the different phases of your career, you seem to have done a little bit of almost everything. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, it'd be great to get your insights. So maybe can you share a little bit of, about your topic today? What brought you to um, this topic of dizziness and vertigo? How did you get to this point yeah. of your research? Well, I, I used to hate neurology, first of all. <laughs> Don't um, we all a little bit? Eh? <laughs> I think so, because it's, it's a little bit more complicated yeah. than most of what yeah. we do. Yeah. And uh, I became interested in neurological emergencies from a patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a patient I saw probably 30 years ago who had a subretinoid hemorrhage, but mm-hmm. she presented with isolated neck pain. Mm-hmm. And somehow, I don't even remember exactly how, mm-hmm. somehow I stumbled into the diagnosis and got it right. But it mm-hmm. got me interested in misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. So the misdiagnosis uh, literature in subretinoid hemorrhage began to interest me, and then stroke in general began to interest me, and then cerebellar stroke, and that's how I got interested mm-hmm. in dizziness. Okay. I think that dizziness is, is the one of the banes of our existence because it's very common. Yeah, weak and dizzy, right? Like that's yeah. like the so one of the bread and butter presentations, and yet uh, it's the one that we kind of all take a deep breath in before we go in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if we were working in the same department at the same time and we both went to the chart rack at the same moment and there was two charts, one with dizziness and the other with any other chief complaint... <laughs> You would pick the one with any other chief complaint, whether it's chest pain or headache or Mm -hmm. vaginal bleeding or a sore knee or a red eye. And I think that the reason is that for all of those other chief complaints, you instantly have an algorithm in your brain, Mm. and it's easy to work through Mm -hmm. that algorithm. Mm -hmm. And with dizziness, the algorithm that has always been taught, where you ask, what do you mean dizzy, Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't work. The, The literature that it's based on is very faulty. Yeah. Uh, it comes from literature from over 40 years ago, okay. and the, the paper would never have even been published in yeah. today's standards. Are you talking about the difference between uh, feeling the actual vertigo versus lightheadedness? Is that what you mean? That's yeah. the kind of the divergence, right? Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the uh, prevailing paradigm that's taught in not just in emergency medicine, but in internal medicine yeah. and ENT and neurology Probably in med too, school, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, is you ask the patient, what do you mean dizzy? Mm-hmm. And the patient might use words saying that uh, they feel spinning and mm-hmm. it's vertigo. Mm-hmm. They might say, I feel lightheadedness, mm-hmm. like I'm going to faint. Mm-hmm. They might say, I feel imbalanced, mm-hmm. like I'm dizzy in my body as opposed mm-hmm. to my head. Mm-hmm. Or they might not be able to describe it at all. So mm-hmm. those are the four boxes. Mm-hmm. And there was some research done at Hopkins. It's probably been about 10 years ago mm-hmm. now where researchers went to Mm -hmm. dizzy patients Mm -hmm. in the emergency department, Mm -hmm. and they asked a series of questions Mm -hmm. designed at, what do you mean dizzy, but also at the timing of the symptom and the triggers of it. Okay. And I'll I'll explain that in a moment. And then they came back an average of six minutes later, Mm -hmm. asked the exact same questions, but in a randomized different sequence. Mm And 50% of the patients changed the box of dizziness, the type of dizziness, mm-hmm. within six minutes. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself means mm-hmm. that the, the, the asking, what do you mean dizzy, can't possibly work. Yeah. About 80% of the time, patients chose two different boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about the, the old paradigm is that for it to work, each word, each box, the mm-hmm. vertigo, the mm-hmm. lightheadedness, the disequilibrium, et cetera, has to be tightly linked with a differential diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, of literature uh, 
that says that it isn't. Mm. So that old paradigm, which I, I call a symptom quality paradigm, mm -hmm. what's the quality of the dizziness yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. By timing and triggers, I mean the same way you take a history, uh, you would never go to a chest pain patient and say, what do you mean chest pain? And if they said, well, it's sharp and pleuritic, you would only think about a, a PE or, or pleurisy. Uh, if they said it was sharp and tearing, you would only think it's a uh, dissection. Yeah. Uh, if I told you, though, this patient has uh, sharp, tearing chest pain, but they've had it intermittently for the last week, and they only get it when they're walking up a flight of stairs carrying a bundle of groceries, and it goes away within three minutes when they rest, that's angina. Mm -hmm. um, even though they use the word sharp and tearing. Mm -hmm. So you take a history of a dizziness patient just like you take a history of any other patient. Mm -hmm. There's this timing and triggers thing is embedded into the way we take a history of anybody. So if a symptom is intermittent, whether mm -hmm. it's belly pain or chest pain or headache, mm -hmm. uh, is it triggered by something? Is the chest pain triggered by walking up the flight of stairs carrying the groceries or does it just come and go without any obvious trigger? Mm -hmm. So it, it sounds like a new approach, but it's really the same approach that you use with every other patient that you see. It's just more nuanced approach to the algorithm that you may have been taught earlier on in your career. And now that you're a more seasoned clinician, the idea would be to add that layer of expertise and nuance that you do to every other diagnosis, right? Well, it's, it's more than that. What you mm -hmm. said is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that if it's vertigo, if they use a, a word that it's spinning, mm -hmm. and in fact I have a video clip in the presentation of a patient mm -hmm. uh, who had atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular mm -hmm. uh, response, mm -hmm. and it was the third time he came to the emergency department mm -hmm. for the same thing. He mm -hmm. wasn't hypotensive, so it wasn't mm -hmm. that he was hypoperfusing yeah. yeah. his vestibular uh, nucleus in the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, he just perceived his atrial fibrillation as vertigo. Mm -hmm. And he says, he, it's beautiful the way he describes it, he mm -hmm. says, I felt like I was on a merry-go-round on a kid's oh. playground. Mm -hmm. I have another patient um, that had BPPV, positive dexalpite, got better with an mm -hmm. Epley, that said, this isn't vertigo, doctor. I've had vertigo before. This is lightheadedness. Mm -hmm. So the word that a patient uses is diagnostically mm -hmm. irrelevant. And it's hard to get through our, our, into our skulls because we've been taught the opposite for so long. It's like telling a six-year-old that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, the word that a patient uses is not diagnostically meaningful. Mm. Very true. Um, I think that uh, I've even had, just hallmarking back to your comment about chest pain, I've asked patients about chest pain and uh, I've had them say, no, I don't have any chest pain but I have this pressure on my chest. Exactly. And the the language that we use, I think we've codified it so much sometimes that we instinctively use these terms that to the patient who who isn't part of our culture, isn't part of our lexicon, yeah. doesn't know the codes of uh, what we're trying to listen for, um, they're using the terms that are natural to them. And I think that that's probably the part that's a little bit lost in translation, even if they could describe it they might not describe it with the same words we do. Right, and I, I think with dizziness, the problem is mm -hmm. compounded because not only is the patient in that situation, mm -hmm. but we as doctors are, are trying to dig out, is it vertigo, is it, is it mm -hmm. disequilibrium? When yeah. The reality is that it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the timing and the triggers, how did it start, mm -hmm. how long has it lasted, 
Uh, are there associated symptoms or not? What makes it worse might get better. Yeah, again, the same the same history taken any other patient. The OPQRST of dizziness, I guess. Yes. Eh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, so that's a really good pearl um, to think about dizziness, not just in the algorithmic textbook fashion, but rather to be more nuanced about it. Um, what else do we need to think about when we're um, in well, the bedside think, looking at a weakened dizzy chart about to go into the room? Anything else that we sure. should keep in mind? So there's, there is an algorithm, mm -hmm. and uh, in, in the articles and in the talk, I do go over an algorithm. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I'm taking that away, mm -hmm. I'm just changing yeah. the algorithm. Yeah. Um, in emergency medicine, probably 50% at least of patients with dizziness don't have a vestibular problem or a central nervous system problem. Um, they have, you know, dizziness and nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and I ate a bad burrito. They have dizziness and vaginal bleeding and abdominal pain, and I missed my last period. Mm -hmm. They have dizziness and cough and green sputum and fever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times it's the context mm -hmm. and the associated symptoms that make it clear this is not a vestibular or a central nervous mm -hmm. system problem. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a general medical toxic metabolic infectious problem. Mm -hmm. So that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. I still think it's worth looking quickly for nystagmus and, and mm -hmm. testing cerebellar function. You can do that in half a minute mm -hmm. um, to make sure that there's nothing worrisome. But, but half the dizzy patients we see have general medical problems. For the other half or so that don't, the first question is, are you dizzy right now? Mm -hmm. You're standing in front of the patient, are you dizzy right now? Mm -hmm. um, when the dizziness started, uh, has it been continuously present? Mm -hmm. So someone that had dizziness that began relatively abruptly or, mm -hmm. or at least rapidly mm -hmm. and is persisting at the time mm -hmm. that I'm seeing them, they have an acute vestibular syndrome. Mm -hmm. Starts quickly and lasts for hours to days. Mm -hmm. That is tightly linked with mm -hmm. a differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's usually either vestibular neuritis mm -hmm. or posterior circulation stroke. Mm -hmm. There are other causes, but those two probably represent over 90%, 95%. But like MS and some other kind of neurological MS symptoms. would be the third most common. Yeah. So if you add vestibular neuritis and posterior circulation stroke and MS, uh, you're about 95% of all patients with an acute vestibular syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, the only one in that list of very uncommon causes that I would draw our attention to uh, is Wernicke's. Hmm. So acute uh, thiamine depletion can mm -hmm. present with an acute vestibular syndrome. And because that's treatable, mm -hmm. and because we're not just seeing it in, in chronic alcoholics, mm -hmm. but in it's been reported in hyperemesis patients, mm -hmm. in patients with bariatric surgery, which is becoming more and more common, mm -hmm. in patients with long ICU stays that haven't had thiamine repletion. So Wernicke's is, is a very rare cause, but an easily treatable cause. Mm -hmm. um, the nice thing about the, and, and, and multiple sclerosis, even though it's more elegant and better to make the diagnosis, we don't have to make that diagnosis yeah. in the emergency department. No one's gonna die from MS in the next week before they see a neurologist. Yeah. So the major distinction for us is, is this vestibular neuritis, which is just like Bell's palsy of the eighth nerve, mm -hmm. Uh, or is this a posterior circulation stroke? And the cool thing uh, is that you can make that distinction at the bedside by physical examination. Mm -hmm. Now most emergency physicians I think nowadays have heard of the HINTS exam. Mm -hmm. uh, the HINTS exam is something that those studies 
not the exam, but the studies were done by neuro-otologists. Mm -hmm. So we don't know that you or I in routine practice can use them with the same results as a neuro-otologist. There have been a couple of studies, one by stroke neurologists and one by emergency physicians. It's a study, an Italian study in Florence, where specially trained emergency physicians with, with extra training and using Frenzel lenses uh, can apply it, the HINTS exam. Um, but that's not routine practice. So in addition to the three elements of the HINTS exam, I add two other things. Um, one is, you know, just a quick targeted exam of the posterior fossa. So brain stem functions, cranial nerve function, finger to nose, that kind of thing. Um, and if that's all negative, the fifth question that I ask is, can the patient sit or walk unassisted? Mm-hmm. And the one thing I would say is that emergency physicians should walk every dizzy patient. Uh, if they can't walk, first of all, we can't send them home. So to us, it has a practical <laughs> disposition, home or in, yeah. inpatient Definitely. sort of thing. But in addition to that, uh, it's much more likely to be a stroke if they really can't walk. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that they're a little unsteady, like you might have had a few beers real quickly and you're a little unsteady. Mm-hmm. I'm saying they can't walk independently mm-hmm. or even can't sit up in the stretcher without holding on to the side rails independently. Yeah. So I asked five questions, and, and the hints exam, I don't do it in the sequence of hints. Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice way to remember things. Um, but I start with nystagmus. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much time we have, but uh, if I could spend a couple minutes on some of the nuances of nystagmus. Yeah. Um, I spent the first 25 years of my career without having a clue about what nystagmus meant. I kind of had a general sense of what its definition was. I kind of had a general sense of did they have it or not. But but the details of the nystagmus escaped me completely until I started thinking about it. Um, and, and now I view nystagmus as my friend. Mm-hmm. It's something that really easy to do, mm-hmm. pretty easy to interpret, and can give me incredibly useful clinical information. And I'll give some examples of that. Yeah. So I always say to emergency physicians, telling a neurologist that a dizzy patient has nystagmus is kind of like telling an orthopedist that a patient with arm pain has an arm fracture. It's a truthful statement, but it's completely meaningless to the orthopedist. Mm-hmm. You know, is it open or closed? Is it angulated or not? Is it intraarticular or not? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that, that the orthopedist needs to make a decision about. Mm-hmm. Similarly, with nystagmus in a dizzy patient, it's the details. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has direction-changing nystagmus, mm-hmm. that's always a central nervous system problem. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's a stroke could be an MS plaque, mm-hmm. it could be a tumor, mm-hmm. uh, it could be that you've just given them propofol for procedural sedation. And in fact, if you use propofol, have a patient look to the right and the left next time you do it, because they have the best direction changing the stagmus ever mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. If you drink a lot of alcohol, you might have direction changing the stagmus. If you have a seizure patient that's on dilantin and they have a therapeutic level, they will have direction changing the stagmus. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's uh, it's it's a tumor or a stroke, Mm -hmm. it just means that it's central. Um, If it's always, so let me say one other thing about direction change, it means that you have the patient look right and look left. Mm -hmm. Um, If a patient has unilateral nystagmus, Mm -hmm. uh, that could be central, but it's it's very consistent Mm -hmm. with it being um, peripheral. Mm -hmm. 
And we're just talking about patients with an acute vestibular syndrome now, meaning started quickly, mm -hmm. persistently present, present at the time I'm seeing them in the ED. Mm -hmm. um, if a patient like that has um, vertical nystagmus or torsional nystagmus, that's always central. So that's one reason I start with nystagmus. It's easy to see mm -hmm. uh, and it's very meaningful physiologically. Mm -hmm. The second reason is that the HINTS studies have been done in patients with nystagmus so that you can't really interpret with clarity the head impulse test, um, which we'll get to in a moment, without knowing if they have nystagmus or not. Mm -hmm. And the third reason I start with it is that it's easy for the patient. It's not very invasive or mm -hmm. intrusive. Yeah. All they have to do is sit there and open their eyes and yeah. follow your finger. You're not moving their head. So it's, it's kind of patient-friendly yeah. um, of those tests. Because you could stop after that if you see the rotational, yeah. if you see the... Yeah, if you see yeah. something mm -hmm. central, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I finished the exam because I like dizziness, but mm -hmm. the reality is that if you had a dizzy patient uh, who had acute persistent dizziness, mm -hmm. you saw direction-changing nystagmus, and then you get called off for resuscitation, you already have enough information to admit that patient for a stroke workup. Mm -hmm. So... Of those five questions, mm -hmm. nystagmus, skew deviation, head impulse test, targeted posterior fossa exam, mm -hmm. can they walk? Mm -hmm. If any one of those questions is worrisome, mm -hmm. the, the answer to the question is worrisome, uh, it's a stroke until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. If all five of those is reassuring, um, then you treat for neuritis. Yeah. And the nice thing about that is that you don't need to have them see a neurologist in the ED, which is, at least at my shop, is going to take three or four hours. Mm -hmm. They don't need a CT or an MRI right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you give them steroids and maybe an antiviral, and you treat them like you would treat a Bell's palsy. Mm -hmm. So that little bit of extra time you spend with the exam up front mm -hmm. may give you reassuring enough information to discharge someone and save you hours on the back mm -hmm. end with the patient sitting around waiting for a consult or imaging. Definitely. Um, and the contrary is also true. If the results are worrisome, so in the patient that's had a stroke, you admit them or you do whatever you do in your shop with an acute stroke patient. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to note that the physical examination is more sensitive than imaging. Mm -hmm. And by imaging here, I mean MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging. Mm -hmm. a, a CT scan is a horrible study for an mm -hmm. acute posterior mm -hmm. circulation stroke. Mm -hmm. It's very insensitive early. Mm -hmm. um, but there are now three studies. Uh, two of them are by the same group, but they're different mm -hmm. cohorts of patients. Mm -hmm. uh, there are now three studies that show that diffusion-weighted MRI will be falsely negative in the first 48 hours mm. with patients presenting with an acute vestibular syndrome who have had a stroke. Mm -hmm. The gold standard in those studies were mm -hmm. a delayed diffusion-weighted imaging MRI a day four or five. Mm. So they all had a stroke, but the physical exam was mm -hmm. more sensitive, and, and the numbers are about 80 to 85 percent mm. uh, they pick up. So they miss 15 to 20 percent. Mm. So the, um, the right answer, if it, let's say you were to call the neurologist on the telephone, you don't have a neurologist in mm -hmm. the house, um, you say, I've got a patient with an acute vestibular syndrome, they have direction changing the stagmus, mm -hmm. the right answer to the question is not, well, do an MRI, assuming you could get one, 
do an MRI and if it's negative, discharge them. Mm-hmm. The right answer is let's admit them for the vascular workup and mm-hmm. whatever your hospital does for a stroke patient. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's one of, it's actually, if you think about it, a pretty cool thing mm-hmm. uh, to have physical examination trumping something as, as high tech as yeah. diffusion weighted MRI. Yeah. And the reality is that in most places on the planet, you can't get a diffusion weighted MRI very easily or very quickly. Yeah. Um, so the first piece is nystagmus. Yeah. The second question I ask is, is there skew deviation? Mm -hmm. That's a little harder to describe in a a podcast without a video clip, but it's basically looking for tiny little vertical changes in the eye position Mm -hmm. when you cover and then uncover Mm -hmm. one eye and then the next. Yeah, and what we can do is we can, uh, there's a pretty good video that is associated with the HINTS exam, that uh, paper, and we can link to that so that people can take it. Perfect, because the reality is that, you know, if you forget all of these things, uh, these video clips on YouTube Mm -hmm. or Google are, Mm -hmm. you know, instantly available for all of these findings and maneuvers. Um, the skew deviation I don't find particularly helpful because I don't see it very often. But if you do see it, it's always a CNS yeah. lesion. Mm-hmm. Then there's the head impulse test. And this one you really need to uh, look at a video clip for. Mm-hmm. But essentially it's a test of the peripheral vestibular system. Um, this test is the most sensitive for a peripheral vestibular problem. The problem is that it's an odd test mm-hmm. in that it's a positive test the presence of a corrective saccade that's reassuring, and it's a negative test that's worrisome for a stroke. So if you and I were to do head impulse tests on each other right now, they would both be negative, i.e. worrisome that we're having a stroke, but neither one of us is having a stroke right now. Um, So you can only use a head impulse test, well, you can't only use it, but you can only interpret a head impulse test in a patient who has nystagmus mm-hmm. and has an acute vestibular syndrome. Yeah, it's a precursor that you have to have these two criteria first be- before you actually test for Correct. that Correct, be- because that otherwise it'll be negative and it'll say, oh, this patient's having a stroke when they're not. It'll be a false positive. Correct. Even though it's a negative finding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, That's so, the confusing part, yeah, right? Because so, we say it's a negative finding, and yet it's a it's a false positive. If, right. So the best way to do is just describe what you're seeing. Yeah. Is there a, is there a corrective saccade or not? Presence mm-hmm. or absence of a corrective saccade, mm-hmm. and that gets you out of that bind that yeah. you just described. Yeah. So so I do nystagmus, skew deviation, head impulse tests, and then I do a targeted cranial nerve cerebellar exam. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing I would add to that is that. You know, remember the posterior cerebral artery is kind of the terminal branch of the basilar artery. So that's still posterior circulation. Um, so it's worth doing quickly visual fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and visual, you know, the two things that are important here, visual fields and gait, are the two things that non-neurologists probably do the worst at. We just mm-hmm. don't frequently incorporate that as mm-hmm. part of our neuro exam, but we should because they cover a huge amount of neuroanatomic territory. Mm-hmm. Um, when I do visual fields, I just, you know, stand a few feet away from the patient, uh, maybe a couple feet, and uh, I tell them to cover one eye, and I kind of close my one eye, and then I show them in their peripheral field either one finger, two fingers, or five fingers, mm-hmm. because one is easy to distinguish from zero, and two from one, and five from either one or two, but if you get into two or three, or three or four, mm-hmm. or four or five, it gets murkier. So show them one finger, two fingers, or five fingers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, occasionally you'll pick up a, a hemianopsia or a quadrant on opsia um, that'll show the patient's having a posterior circulation event. Mm-hmm. 
So again, if the answer to any one of those five questions is, is worrisome, they get admitted for stroke workup. If the answer is, is uh, reassuring to all five of those questions, they get some steroids and some valcyclovir and go home. Yeah, you're kind of building a case for safe discharge. Mm-hmm. Much in the same way that you would do it with a chest pain patient, with a PE patient, uh, you gather the evidence to prove that it is not these deadly diagnoses or right. worrisome diagnoses. Yep, and, and a cerebellar or brain stem stroke can be mm-hmm. deadly in the sense that Obviously, they're awake and alert and talking to you, so that first stroke they're okay from. Mm-hmm. But cerebellar edema that will form in the mm-hmm. second and third and fourth post-stroke day, just like any stroke, will have some cytotoxic edema. Yeah. But in the posterior fossa, it's a tight, confined box. Yeah. And when you get edema there, it compresses the brain stem, and people can die from that and do. Mm-hmm. The second reason is that whatever is causing the stroke, whether it's cardioembolism or a vertebral dissection or a stenosis of a vertebral artery, mm-hmm. that pathological mechanism is still there and the patient's vulnerable to a second stroke, which might be worse. Mm-hmm. So those are the two reasons why it's important not yeah. to miss them. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, you can make the distinction at the bedside. I mean, it's a the reality is that physical examination is not useful for a lot of things we do. If you yeah. think about the last time you had a chest pain patient where your physical exam actually made a diagnosis for you, yeah. there are not that many. You might hear a rub. Um, uh, you might hear a new murmur. You might see the DVT. <laughs> <laughs> but the physical exam just isn't that yeah. useful. Yeah, I know. Uh, you, re- you read, uh, you go through medical school and you get taught all these maneuvers. And then you read the cl- rational clinical exam series at some point in your residency. And your whole world falls apart because all yeah. these rituals that we pass on, their likelihood ratios and their additive value uh, don't tend to be that strong. But in this case, I think you're in this case, exactly it really is. right. Yeah, it's so important. So working through the algorithm, it's not a toxic metabolic infectious sort of general medical condition. Mm-hmm. That first question, is it still present when I'm seeing the patient? Yes. Yeah. But if the answer is no, then it's probably an episodic vestibular syndrome. And there's two flavors of episodic. There's spontaneous, which just comes on out of the blue, mm-hmm. and it's triggered, where I can re- reliably trigger it at the bedside. Mm-hmm. Um, the spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome is usually either uh, vestibular migraine is the benign diagnosis, which is very common, mm-hmm. uh, or posterior circulation TIA, mm-hmm. which is less common, but not by any means rare. Yeah. With a spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, you're, you're stuck using your history. Mm-hmm. Um, by definition, they're no longer symptomatic, mm-hmm. and you can't trigger it, so it's all history. Mm-hmm. And as a general rule, and this hasn't been uh, validated, but as a general rule, um, the younger the patient, the absence of vascular risk factors, the more attacks over a longer period of time, history of migraine versus no history of migraine, uh, those are all things, and, and duration of attack. I mean, TIAs are generally pretty short, mm-hmm. 15, 30, 60 minutes. Um, even though the old definition was 24 hours, but most of them are less than an hour, whereas migraine attacks can be many, many hours. So those are the things I think about in trying to tease out, is this vestibular migraine or is this uh, posterior circulation TIA? Um, You know, it's another awkward conversation with the neurologist on the telephone where you say, I have a you know, 70-year-old patient with hypertension and hypercholesterolemia on meds, 
but well-controlled, who had a 30-minute episode of dizziness mm -hmm. that came on abruptly and, and went away abruptly, and now they're completely normal. Um, and if you had the same exact patient and you said that they had 30 minutes of a right facial droop and right arm weakness, there would be no question about the TIA. Yeah. Um, but the posterior circulation doesn't get the same respect that the anterior circulation <laughs> gets. Yeah. And um, that same patient could easily be a TIA. About 8% yeah. of patients with posterior circulation strokes will have had a posterior circulation TIA. Mm. And, and especially older neurologists, because when I went to medical school, um, the notion that isolated dizziness was a TIA was thought to be never the case. Mm. Um, but newer literature clearly shows that it is. Yeah. So that's the spontaneous episodic. Luckily, at least at some of our sites here, our stroke prevention clinic actually has dizziness by itself as a criteria oh, good. now. Good. But that's for outpatient TIA workup, and so the neurologists are quite happy to see people in the next day or a couple of days later. That's not the case for all of our sites, but I think increasingly we're recognizing it. Yeah. There's a lot of variability in how systems handle TIA patients. Mm -hmm. I think that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not a big fan of outpatient workup. Um, unless you've ruled out the more serious mm -hmm. treatable causes. So if they're not an AFib, mm -hmm. if they don't have a loud new murmur, mm -hmm. um, and uh, if their vessels are open, mm -hmm. then I think they're safe. You give them an aspirin or some clopidogrel or both mm -hmm. and have them fall up an outpatient is fine. Mm -hmm. So I think that you can easily do a TIA kind of workup, mini workup in the ED and then have outpatient treatment. Yeah. But there are lots of systems that, that do treat them as outpatients without, without doing the CTA. Um, my problem with that paradigm is that uh, the time where the patient is at their highest risk, because we know about 10% of patients with a TIA will have a stroke within three months, mm -hmm. but half of that 10%, 5% is in the first 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So we're taking the patient at their highest risk of having an event yeah. um, and doing it as an outpatient where most systems just aren't efficient enough to really deal with that. Uh, but that's uh, that's not related to the dizziness so much. Uh, yeah, that's more of a systems level issue. Yeah. But I mean, I think that this is the age that we live in: is that you know you can be the great bedside clinician, but if you but if you have a system that isn't supporting and augmenting your diagnosis or your ability to diagnose, I think that that falls apart. So I think it's always going to enter into modern conversations. I think about yeah. about care. So yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. So the third category of acute dizziness is, is a triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. And here, by definition, the patient is asymptomatic at rest, mm -hmm. but you can trigger it. Mm -hmm. The two most common triggers by far are, you know, standing up, orthostatic hypotension, which mm -hmm. could be from a benign diagnosis from a gastro, mm -hmm. or it could be from a bad diagnosis, an ectopic, or a GI bleed. Mm -hmm. And then the other is BPPV, where you can precipitate it by a Dix-Hall pike mm -hmm. uh, for at least posterior canal BPPV. Mm -hmm. um, there are some others. There's, you know, bow hunter syndrome, vertebral artery rotation, where they move their head to one side and they get mm -hmm. dizzy. Um, but the vast majority are going to be BPPV or mm -hmm. orthostatic hypotension. And here, again, physical exam is, is, is king. Mm -hmm. um, you can... And let me just say one other thing, which is important. Some patients with BPPV, the classic history is I get a brief episode that starts mm -hmm. abruptly after I turn my head. Mm -hmm. It lasts 20, 30 seconds, and mm -hmm. it goes away. Mm -hmm. 
But a lot of patients will either have uh, an anticipation of getting dizzy mm -hmm. or a phobia, fear of moving their head that they're going to mm -hmm. provoke dizziness mm -hmm. or the nausea outlasts the dizzy episode mm -hmm. by a long time. And they give you a history that I've been dizzy for an hour, or my episodes last an hour, or I've had patients that say I've been dizzy for two days. Mm -hmm. um, if you tease that out, mm -hmm. because BPPV is by far the most common of these things, mm -hmm. um, you know, most emergency physicians working full time, you should be seeing, you know, two or three or four cases a year at least. And if you're not, you're missing it. Mm -hmm. um, so some patients will say, you know, I've had it for two days, but, you know, sometimes it's a lot worse, sometimes it's better. Mm -hmm. Superficially, those patients will mimic an acute vestibular syndrome because they're constantly uh, symptomatic with quotes around that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're not sure, do a Dick's Hawk bite and mm -hmm. check it out. Mm -hmm. um, I have a video clip of a patient where that's the case in, in the talk. Mm -hmm. um, and if they have a positive Dick's Hawk bite, then you've made your diagnosis mm -hmm. and, you know, you can fix that. Yeah. Um, I think about BPPV as the nursemaid's elbow of neurology. <laughs> um, it's a diagnosis yeah. where you suspect it by the history, you can confirm it and fix it by a physical maneuver. Yeah. And, and a lot of emergency physicians, we had this conversation last night, say, well, you know, if I diagnose it, why not just refer it to you know, ENT or something? Or in some systems, the referral is to um, a physical therapist that does yeah. uh, vestibular rehab. And I guess my answers are at least twofold. The first is that in my system, if I refer someone to ENT, it's at least a couple weeks before they get seen. Yeah. And although it's benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, it's not so benign to the person having it. It's, it's a very yeah. worrisome finding because it's messing with your whole sense of position and space, mm -hmm. which is a, a very primitive sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, in older people, it's a cause of falls. and you know, we see falls every day, and you know, even if it's just a wrist fracture or something, that's a big deal uh, to an older person that might live alone to have a cast on their dominant arm for six weeks. Mm -hmm. So, if it's a hip, if it's a subdural, if it's a broken neck, if it's broken ribs, it's even a bigger deal. But even a wrist, which I mean, I have to confess, I think about as a minor thing, it's a big deal for an old patient. Mm -hmm. So, if you can fix it right now, why not? It's better patient care. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that it's like if you had a nursemaid's elbow and you diagnosed it and then you didn't fix it, you sent it off to an orthopedist a few days there. It's completely illogical. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that it's fun. It's like, you know, there's <laughs> not that many yeah. there's not that many things in medicine where you can fix the patient right now mm -hmm. with a physical maneuver. Yeah. Um, so it's fun to do. Yeah. Um, so I do it. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's easy to, if you forget it, again, YouTube it, uh, Google it, you'll see, you know, is there a handle different... on up to date even? Yeah, there's yeah, lots it's, of it's, different resources yeah. on it. So. And, and you will forget yeah. a lot yeah. of these maneuvers, yeah. and that's fine. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's taken me years uh, of having to look it up to the point where it's kind of embedded yeah. in my brain right now, yeah. but it wasn't always like that. Yeah. So, There's so, actually some devices as well. People have developed these hats you can put on the patient. So if you're, um, oh really? Yeah, if your uh, if your emergency department is uh, well, um, 
resource resourced enough to buy one of these. I think they're only about a hundred bucks, but it's this really? tube that has actually the ball, and so you can put it ah. a certain way, and then you just get the ball into the thing, and I've it mirrors the the vestibular Canals. system. So, yeah, oh, that's very cool. Inventive, right? It was yeah. invented by a, knee, a couple of ENT surgeons, right? They're like, yeah, well, that's neat. You know, to help someone. I'm sure there's an iPhone app out there, probably too. <laughs> probably. But yeah, and if there isn't, someone should invent it. I'm yeah. sure that we would just put the iPhone on a person's pocket and then have them roll around until yeah <laughs> uh, anyway but yeah i mean i think that the epley maneuver i find it very satisfying as well um not quite no. as satisfying as a nursemaid elbow yeah that's right? true <laughs> because that little kid reaching for the popsicle is always cheers up my day but yeah. the smiles that i get from people yeah. um when they get to walk in they walked in very distressed and walk out completely yeah. fine it's so, so nice a couple yeah. nuances though mm-hmm. number one mm-hmm. um a dick saw pike should be positive on one side and negative on the other side. Yep. If you have bilateral positives, it either means you have bilateral BPPV, which I've never seen, yeah. and in the literature is extraordinarily rare, yeah. Yeah. or it means it's a false positive. It's yep. just a dizzy patient. If you took a patient with a cerebellar stroke yeah. and you you know move them yeah. all over, they're going to get dizzy. Yeah. So it has to be positive on one mm-hmm. side, negative on the other. Mm-hmm. The second nuance is that it's important to start with the patient's head at 45 degrees mm-hmm. from straight on. Mm-hmm. And that's because it'll put the posterior mm-hmm. semicircular canal in an anterior posterior orientation yeah. and maximally stress that yeah. canal. The third is that you usually see nystagmus, but not always. So if someone said to me, mm-hmm. uh, if I brought him down on the right and mm-hmm. they said, I'm fine, I brought him down on the left mm-hmm. and they say, oh my God, I've got horrible dizziness and I look mm-hmm. carefully and there's no nystagmus, I'll count that as a positive. Mm-hmm and then I'll go into an epley. Mm-hmm. You should test both sides first. Mm-hmm. Um, after I do an epley, mm-hmm. I go off and suture a lot, do a chart, talk to a resident, mm-hmm. whatever. I come back in five minutes, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. and I re-Dixhaw pike them. Mm-hmm. You should be able to convert a positive Dixhaw pike to a negative Dixhaw pike. And sometimes you need to do two or three, I've, I've had to do four epleys on one patient mm-hmm. to convert it to negative. Mm-hmm. If you can't convert it to negative, especially in patients without nystagmus, then you have to question your mm-hmm. diagnosis. Yeah. The next thing is, um, and this is where timing and triggers categories also helps you. Remember we said that torsional nystagmus in a patient with an acute vestibular syndrome is worrisome, mm-hmm. but with posterior canal BPPV, the nystagmus is torsional nystagmus. Mm-hmm. So your interpretation of the nystagmus is different in someone with an acute vestibular syndrome Mm -hmm. as compared to a triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. Mm -hmm. The next thing is if the history really sounds like BPPV but your Dixaw pike is negative, um, about 85% of BPPV is posterior canal, Mm -hmm. but about 12% or so is horizontal canal. And there's a different provocative maneuver, it's Mm -hmm. called the supine head roll, and um, there's a different uh, therapeutic maneuver. They're actually easier to do than mm-hmm. the Dixaw pike and the Epley. Um, but I- if you want, you should do those if it really seems like uh, BPPV, but your Dixaw pikes are mm-hmm. negative. Yeah. Uh, and those two are things that are YouTubeable and Googleable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's kind of the algorithm yeah. as I think about it. And that's fantastic. Uh, the physical exam is king. It, it mm-hmm. really helps you. And, and learning a couple basic rules about nystagmus that, you know, the reality is dizziness is a little bit more complicated than most of what we do. Mm-hmm. I assure you, I'm no smarter than the average emergency physician. I work hard, I've done a lot of stuff, but I'm not mm-hmm. smarter than anybody else. 
And uh, I've learned how to use this and how to learn how to look for nystagmus and interpret it. And it really helps a lot. Mm-hmm. It, it, it allows me to make more rapid dispositions. And, you know, that's a lot of what we're about is, mm-hmm. as emergency physicians, making quick, safe dispositions for our patients. Mm-hmm. So it actually helps you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So thank you very much for that. Um, I'll make sure to uh, link everyone in the show notes to your papers so that they can uh, they can discover them for themselves. And that's pretty amazing. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about dizziness. Um, I just, just guess, might as well flip over just to ask you a couple of questions about your career. It sounds like uh, this has been a passion of yours for quite some time. How did you sustain this interest in doing, you know, scholarship beyond your your usual shifts. Yeah. Um, what what made you kind of go down this path? What would what inspires you and keeps you going? Because it is something that we we do have people that are interested in their early careers, and I think that'd be lovely to hear how you convert that into a career. You know, to a large extent, my career has been accidental. I, I trained in internal medicine. I don't like to broadcast that, but I did. <laughs> Because uh, I graduated from medical school in 78, okay. so there was no emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started doing it, and I liked it, and I kept doing it. Mm-hmm. Getting interested into neurology in general, because I used to hate neurology because it was mm-hmm. so boring. Mm-hmm. Um, I got interested in neurology because I had a patient that had a subarachnoid hemorrhage mm-hmm. that presented with isolated neck pain yeah. that I stumbled upon the diagnosis. and. That got me interested in misdiagnosis. I think yeah. we talked about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the basic thing is just passion for it. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. It, okay. the, the psychology of misdiagnosis is interesting yeah. to me. Okay. Um, and, and that's really what's driven a lot of my work. Okay. And my work, I don't think of myself as a researcher or a scientist. I'm not. Um, I'm a teacher, and I'm, what I think I, I have a knack for is just synthesizing ideas and putting them into an algorithmic way mm-hmm. of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's ultimately it's the passion that drives mm-hmm. this. If, you know, most of my writing and stuff I'm doing on a weekend or on mm-hmm. an evening is because I enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the biggest mistake young people make in their careers is either being forced into something or feeling like they have to choose a, a niche mm-hmm. uh, and it is important to have a niche mm-hmm. but hopefully the niche chooses you as opposed to you choosing the niche mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise it becomes painful yeah and um, and the other thing is I do like to write I enjoy writing okay. and um, I, I think that's important too yeah. and then finally you know some of my better articles uh, have been rejected f- by four or five journals before oh, yeah. I've gotten them accepted. Resilience. <laughs> so you need to be resilient yeah. and, and a little bit tough-skinned. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you also need to figure out what the correct order on the uh, hierarchy of journals to submit to. Yeah. But start high, your first one. You'll, you might get some good comments from the mm-hmm. reviewers about how to, review, how to mm-hmm. change it uh, and revise it. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it's something that you either enjoy doing or you know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't enjoy doing it and you love being a clinician, then be a clinician. Mm-hmm. Be the best clinician you can. Mm-hmm. If you want to do scholarship, then, then do scholarship. And some people will do more researchy type stuff and need grant support and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And others like myself will, I do, I think some of my best work is just review articles. Mm-hmm. Um, Synthesis. 
So mm -hmm. I guess that's my advice. Yeah, great. Yeah, find something that uh, resonates with you, that you can carry through with passion, be resilient when you're doing it, and try to shop around for that, uh, that thing that powers you, that intrigues you, that gets you thinking and writing. Yeah, for a lot of people, it's a patient. Uh, if you look at... Yeah. Um, Oh, God, I'm blocking on his name now. He was the chairman of uh, Pediatric Emergency Medicine, uh, Gary, um, uh, who did all the work on uh, occult bacteremia in kids, Gary okay. Fleischer. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, all of that interest that led to two decades of pretty high-powered scientific work okay. um, came from one patient. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And he tells that story very uh, articulately. Mm -hmm. So. For many of us, it's, it's a patient, it's an experience, mm -hmm. it's a cluster of cases mm -hmm. that kind of gets you going. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then it's just following your curiosity. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely to chat with you. And, Likewise. Uh, yeah, um, we'll uh, make sure that we distribute this so that our community sites can uh, benefit from all of this as well. Okay, and I think my email is on a lot of the articles. So if people have a question or mm -hmm. people have a case that they mm -hmm. were confused by or excited by, please uh, feel free to email me. Oh, yes, that's great. Uh, thank you very much for your help, and uh, thanks for chatting with us. Big thanks to Dr. Edlow for that incredibly useful conversation about the dizzy emergency department patient. Uh, I can certainly attest to the fact that dogmatic teaching in this area has caused a lot of harm. I've read this multiple times and it's taken a long time for me to kind of get this to stick and to unlearn uh, what has been mostly useless teaching um, in medical school and sometimes beyond. Probably one of the most important takeaways from this discussion was the fact that the question we all ask is, what do you mean by dizzy when we see one of these patients, uh, where we're trying to figure out if they're lightheaded versus having classic vertiginous symptoms versus uh, experiencing some disequilibrium symptoms, is often an unreliable point of divergence on history. Do the inability of patients to describe symptoms in a way that is linked to a clear differential diagnosis? The specific descriptor a patient uses is often diagnostically irrelevant and completely useless to us. And so when we're talking to these patients, beyond the symptomatic descriptors, we need to get into more of our uh, history-taking points. What is the timing of these symptoms? What are the triggers? What is the duration? Are they constant? Are there any associated symptoms? First off, we do need to remember that around 50% of these patients presenting with dizziness do not have a vestibular or CNS issue. Uh, so keep in mind that half of these patients will actually have a general medical issue that is contributing to these symptoms. For the other 50%, some of the key questions you'll want to ask are, are you dizzy right now at the bedside? Has it been continuous since onset? And if, the, if you're answering yes to the above, quick onset lasting to hours to days is usually going to be associated with acute vestibular syndrome, differential diagnosis of which is likely uh, vestibular neuritis or posterior circulation stroke with MS coming in third and much less likely. Uh, and those three diagnoses cover about 95% of patients. Uh, he also makes the point to consider Wernicke's for people with alcohol use disorder or anyone that has any reason to have a nutritional deficiency. And so for people that are continuously dizzy and are dizzy right at the bedside when you're seeing them for the first time, this is the patient you want to be doing a HINTS exam on. Uh, so important point for people that are just learning this exam, this is not to be used for the sporadic patients uh, who are coming in with intermittent symptoms and are not having continuous symptoms at the bedside. Uh, and a good point is that it, it does take some uh, teasing out to figure out if these patients do have continuous symptoms or, or not, because many of them will actually describe some element of symptoms that are continuous, uh, but you really need to delve into the history a bit more to figure out if that is actually the case. So with the HINTS exam, uh, Dr. Edlow suggests starting with nystagmus. If it is direction changing, so you look right and then left and you see it beating in opposite directions, 
or if it's torsional or vertical, think this is a CNS cause. Next, check for skew deviation. If you see this, think CNS, but you may often not see it. And last is the head impulse test. This is uh, where you're looking for the presence of a corrective saccade, and this is reassuring for a peripheral cause of the symptoms. It's obviously very difficult to describe all of these uh, maneuvers and the findings on physical exams, so we will be linking to uh, one of the good hints videos in our show notes for you to check out. So in addition to the hints exam, you will want to do a basic cranial nerve examination to check the rest of the brainstem functions. Uh, you also want to do some cerebellar testing, uh, most specifically to determine if the patient is able to walk or sit unassisted. And remembering that an ataxic gait is quite a bit different than just being slightly unsteady. If the HINTS exam, the cranial nerve exam, and the basic cerebellar testing, especially walking and sitting, are reassuring, you can be fairly safe in assuming this patient has a peripheral cause for the vertigo and treat as such. If any aspect of that exam is concerning, then this patient should be admitted for a stroke workup. So all of what we've summarized so far is for patients that have consistent symptoms. For patients where they are episodic, you'll be going down your episodic vestibular syndrome pathway. If the symptoms come out of the blue, think of vestibular migraine, but you must also consider a TIA, especially in patients where they are older, they have other uh, classic vascular risk factors. As a general rule, if the symptoms last hours to days, think of vestibular migraine uh, over TIA. For patients where the symptoms can be triggered at the bedside with head motion, uh, think of BPPV and consider doing a Dix-Hallpike. Remember that a Dix-Hallpike should be unilaterally positive and you may or may not see nystagmus, but you should be symptomatic. Good Pearl mentioned was to consider doing an Epley maneuver after your Dix-Hallpike and then uh, leave to go do something else in the department and come back and retest the patient and check on their symptoms. Well, that's about it for the dizzy patient. Hopefully with this framework in your back pocket, you might just consider grabbing that dizzy patient chart uh, next time you have the choice between that and a chest pain. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts! Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Teaching That Counts. I mean, we're going to talk about something that's really important, I think, for all of us today. Psychological safety. Yeah, I think we, we need to explore and, and, and really delve into this topic um, because I think psychological safety is a real important uh, piece for our learners to feel comfortable in the environments that they're going to be in. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that psychological safety is about um, when there's like trust in the system, but not just trust, right? Psychological safety is that I, I, I trust everyone enough that and they, they need to trust me that I'll speak up when I'm uncomfortable, that I won't just like worry about, oh, is Aline going to be mad at me if I say the clerkship form sucks right now? And he's going to smile and nod and be like, actually, no, <laughs> like, let's fix it together. Or versus, you know, like if um, I'm like too stressed out right now and I can't take any learners and you know, give me my 17th horizontal in a row. Like, you know, for me to be able to, you need to trust me that I'll speak up when I can't handle. Right. And uh, and I need to trust that I can be vulnerable and, and, and declare that stuff to you. I think it's also the sense of being able to disagree with someone mm -hmm. in a safe space. Right. And mm -hmm. so that there's room for mm -hmm. honesty in yeah. the interaction. So I really like the term trust. And I think honesty mm -hmm. is another piece of that. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that comes down to really setting the expectations with learners that you have. Yeah. You have to have role clarity. I think that's what the way that they talk about it. Like there's 
Amy Edmondson's kind of like the big person in this space, right? She's a Harvard professor. Um, she is uh, in the business school, but she's married to their dean of medical school right now. Oh. So like she has studied a lot of healthcare teams. And so a lot of her stuff really resonates with me. So um, one of the things that she, she does talk about is like that idea of how can we clarify what roles we have um, so that we can really support each other. So I think on a shift with the medical student, for instance, um, I think that looks like telling them that, hey, you're here to learn. I'm here to teach you and uh, setting some ground rules and just making sure that everyone's on the same page about whether or not it's okay to, for them to ask questions, for you to ask them questions, right? You may need to gauge whether or not they feel psychologically safe because all questioning can become really interrogative and, and, and mean-spirited seeming when you're on the other side of it, right? I mean, Bruce does this. My, Bruce, my partner, does this to me. Not irregularly. <laughs> he's a lawyer, so by training, he's just inquisitive, so he asks a billion questions. But after the seventh question, I'm like, am I on the stand right now? Yeah. Right? Like, and, and that's what can feel like. This whole right? courtroom's out of I know, <laughs> I know. I'm like, um, I, I, I do think that sometimes our learners, when we're being like Socratic, they read it as, you know, that old term pimping that I hate, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea is they think of it as interrogative, like questioning and we're trying to size them up and figure out whether or not we're going to give them a good score. Like that's usually not why we're doing it. I, I think the, the broad terms I would use to help clarify that are expectations, which yeah. we've talked about in previous podcasts and setting yeah. that with learners. And the other is intention, yeah. right? So yes. why are you really asking the question that you're mm -hmm. asking? Mm -hmm. And what are you trying to achieve with mm -hmm. your learner? Yeah. What are you hoping that they will learn? Because yeah. is this a, I'm hoping to teach you something. So yeah. then that's why I'm asking you this line of question to yeah. try and yeah. push you down the understanding of yeah. pathology or physiology or whatever, or diagnostics or management. Yeah. Yeah. Or am I doing this with the intention of trying to figure out where you are on that EPA scale, right? Like, yeah. did you really have of independence in this or did you just get lucky right yeah. and so again the intentioning yeah. and being honest with that intention is important because learners can detect or i think suspect that there's always a hidden agenda to some of our I, questions i think they come in suspecting that unless you create the psychological safety exactly you have right? to let them know these are the parts that i'm trying to evaluate for and these are the parts that are just for learning like i'm sometimes i even hit it off at the head and say look i would expect a pgy2 to know this mm -hmm. but i'm going to give you a shot yeah. Do you want to try? Because I'm going to ask the PGY2 after this. And I wink at the PGY2 because I probably already gave them the answer. <laughs> to make sure that they look good in front of their juniors, yeah. that there's psychological safety for them too, right? Um, but I think the other part of it too is being vulnerable. I'm like, I actually don't know the answer to this. Do you remember which mitochondrial problem this is related to? Yeah. And, you know, like they might have come off peds and they might have told you that earlier. What and is a like, mitochondria? Oh, exactly, right? <laughs> uh, I think it's like the stuff in the that the Jedi's have in their blood. Oh, midi yes, Oh, no, that's midi chlorine. Yeah. <laughs> it was in the Mandalorian. It's the Mandalorian, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so what it is is that we're trying to find that um, that honesty there, and to clarify, and to be there for the other people. I think that lends us very nicely that learning orientation. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of our trainees, I hope, know this that we're there not out to get them because. If we want to be out to get them, we'd work for the college or something like that. Right? <laughs> uh, no, no. If we were out to get them, I think we'd 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 probably be um, ill served. We'd burn out so quickly because most of them are so smart. We'd never get them right. It's like um, Gargamel was always foiled by Smurfs. Like that would have been exhausting um, to be him, right? So if we're trying to really be out to get you, we wouldn't be suckers and taking a pay hit to to 
to play in the academic centers. We're usually here for good intentions and trying to build that intention is, is important. So it means also kind of like making that learning orientation for that shift and really kind of shifting towards, I want you to be the best clerk you could be mm-hmm. after this eight hours, right? And I'm not going to move the mark a lot, but I want to move it down the road, right? And making that kind of educational alliance, they call it. And I, what I do with that is when I ask the clerk for a question for each case or mm-hmm. the resident, yeah. I, I tell them specifically, look, I don't want you to ask me a question you know the answer to where you're Mm -hmm. trying to impress me Mm -hmm. that's not the objective of this right and this is helpful for the time of year when you're in that post match Mm -hmm. uh, and you're getting your learners who have already Mm -hmm. matched and who kind of are checked out a little bit so I, I do turn it around to them and say look Whatever you're going to do next, whatever your next phase of life is going to be, I want to make sure you can do better in that role. So let's really drill down on this and try and create knowledge between the two of us. I'm using more of a constructivist approach, right? Exactly. That technique probably works for exiting PGY-5s who are hungry, you know, they're, they're, or exiting PGY-3s, right? Like everyone's trying to be the best doctor they can be. I don't think we could ever enter this job if we want to be the worst doctor. (laughs) That wouldn't be very efficient. No. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't need to be a, you just show, not show up. Right. So we were a filter for people that showed up. So I think we should lean into that a little bit and make sure that uh, we support people in their further development. When you look at it as well as a leader, being able to role model that type of behavior with interdisciplinary teams, I think, is also important. So if you think of our resuscitation environments, I'm often doing that with my nurses, the RTs, other doctors, really allowing that reflective environment to say, hey, this is something that I'm not sure about. Right. Or this is I'm not clear on the diagnosis here. There's a bit of uncertainty in my Mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. Can we help and work together as a team so that I don't have to feel like I have all the answers? Because I think creating those environments in your natural working groups where Mm -hmm. people feel safe to say, you know what, I'm not sure we should give calcium in this situation or Mm -hmm. what's Mm -hmm. going through your mind when you gave antibiotics here. You know, being able to create questions in that space. I think there's tons of evidence in literature to show that we reduce patient uh, uh, patient errors. We improve medical outcomes. You know, that allows people to say, hey, did you really mean a thousand milligrams of morphine when you said a thousand? Right. So mm-hmm. it really allows for clarity and, mm-hmm. and prevention there. Mm-hmm. So psychological safety really is that like group sense. That there's a responsibility for everyone to be listened to and everyone to be um, speaking up at the same time. It's not just a you thing. Trust is a you thing. So you trust someone else. Um, that's a very personal thing. Psychological safety is when the whole system has trust baked in. And I think that that's what you have to do with your trainees is that, and it's really hard, right? Cause you get a new one every shift sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you have to do it. It's like groundhog day. You have to like <laughs> start all over again. Like yeah. it's like a new person and you have to, I mean, I don't think it's a problem. You can have a canned speech just like anything else. You probably all have a canned speech about chest pain. You know, a canned speech about psychological safety. Like, this is a safe shift, right? Um, If you're not sure, if I'm not sure, we're both going to speak up. We're going to discuss and lean into that uncertainty. And we're going to, like, do the best we can for all the patients today. So you can take it forward and be the best doctor you can be. And if you'd start with that pep talk speech, like... Who isn't like tearing up a little bit and wishing every teacher had ever said that to them, yeah. right? Like, I think it, it truly is one of those responsibilities we have to, to create the positive learning environment. Because when things go wrong, mm-hmm. that's when we get labeled as being bullies, mistreaters, abusers, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, if you have good psychological safety, everyone gets coffee sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, we're having incoming, but, you know, the Uber Eats guy is at the door, like, you know, like you have a psychologically safe team, we can all discuss who's the best person to get a coffee and the medical student will step up, right? But you can imagine a non-psychologically safe team where you've been barking orders and yelling at people and grilling them with questions. And then suddenly you go get coffee. 
is mistreatment, right? And so even the same scenario, right, like could be run two different ways. And that's a like very contrite way to kind of like put it. But I truly believe that every action is embedded with all the other actions you've done in the day. The bedside pearl as well is that sometimes you may have a learner who's previously been in an environment that was psychologically unsafe and is now coming to you with this sort of, um, not to use the term lightly, but PTSD from the previous shift, right? And what they're dealing with is sometimes you'll have the learner who won't answer questions, who will be super cautious with their stories or presentations, and they may seem like an underperforming learner, but what's really happened is that they don't feel safe yet to really cross outside that comfort zone and Mm -hmm. enter the learning the learning uh, zone. zone right? They can't get into the zone of proximal development. Where exactly. can they, they can be safely uncomfortable so they can learn. So they're staying right in their safe zone where they can't learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that having the conversation about educational alliance, psychological safety, we'll put all of that in the show notes. But I think that those are really important things to talk about. Because those are the learners where I kind of stop them and say, look, let's let's deconstruct what's going on here, yeah, right? It yeah. seems like to me something else may be going on. This isn't working for both of us. Yeah, like open it up. It? Is there something going on in your life? Is there yeah. another issue that we have to address? Yeah. Is there a problem that's bigger than this and we need to involve yeah. student affairs? Yeah. Or it might just be, you know what, maybe it's even an emotional event in the previous shift, right? Like It could be just the way that you've been with yeah. them, right? Yeah. I remember there's one staff member here who was my electives supervisor when I was a med student. I thought that person hated me. Apparently he didn't uh, actually rather liked me. And this, I won't say the name, but like, honestly, I still remember that. Mm. Um, and this person was very grumpy during the entire time because there were a lot of stresses on that person. Yeah. And so it could be that you're super stressed out, a little crispy on the edges and uh, you're a little singed. So maybe you're not giving the best vibe. Right. And it's hard to do that if you're not reflexive and reflective about what vibe you're giving out. And the best way is to just stop and say, hey, this doesn't seem to be working. Like, can we chat a little bit about what how we can make it work better? And you can't have your best on every shift. Right. Like I've had the shift, you know, especially we have the casinos. You show up at 4 a.m. Right. Like. Yeah. It is hard to be cheery at four no. in the morning. And I'm a fairly cheery person. And so yeah. sometimes up front with the student, I'll be like, you know what, resident, student, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to be at my best. It's 4 a.m. Yeah. So right? let's work together as Let's kind of, so if you think I'm being cranky with you, it's not. It's my general hatred for this. But call me out on you it. Know? Be, so, just be safe. Yeah. Uh, so feel free yeah. to let me know if this is, is affecting your learning. If you feel like I'm judging you or the questions I'm asking are kind of falling into yeah. that trap of guess what I'm thinking that we've talked yeah. about before. Feel free to challenge me on those elements so that we get out of that zone. Yeah. And, and really identifying yourself, not as this omnipotent and omniscient being. Yeah is super valuable because it helps deconstruct that, especially for early learners, right? There is that halo where you look forward at the people ahead of you and say, oh, they know everything, they can do no wrong. And being honest about how you're feeling, that if you're having Mm -hmm. a not great day or it's super busy in the department and you have other responsibilities Mm -hmm. and can't spend as much time, making sure that the learner knows it's not about them. Yeah. Actually, that brings me to one story that I think is really important to tell. We had a really bad pediatric arrest one time. Uh, the senior resident took the brunt of the emotional burden, um, did an amazing job, broke down when we were debriefing. I was like, you need to go home. And we debriefed that. Um, this person handed over all of the cases over to me. Um, and then uh, this person, I was like, you're probably not going to make good decisions right now. I'm not as emotionally wrought as you are. And so I will stay. Um, and, uh, and I think it took a while to build up to the safety that I wasn't judging this person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if I was as train wrecked as this person, I truly would have called the on-call doc and be like, come bail me up. And we talked about that, but it took a little bit of time on the flip side. The medical student for that shift was like, 
kind of came in late to the code, wasn't really there for a lot of it, kind of just saw like Russ is sitting from the back of the room. When he saw all this went down, he was like, how can I help? I was like, do you want to go home too? He's like, no, I, I'm fine. I really am. I'm like, are you sure? Um, he's like, no, no, seriously. I like caught like five seconds of the last thing. I heard you guys call it, but that's about it. And I'm not like shaken up or anything. He looked like he was telling the truth. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, why don't we not see any new patients between the two of you and I, and you can be the Robin to my Batman. We will run around and you will help me pick up after myself. Cause I'm not, I'm not, oh, I, I can't go on like this. I'm pretty up, shaken up and upset too, but I have to, you know, finish this shift. And he's like, cool. And he picked up a number of mistakes. He spoke up and I think we created real psychological safety here. And he felt really useful at the end of the shift and thanked me for it. And I was like, no, thank you. You probably saved a bunch of lives today, <laughs> you know? And so like, with you know, it, like little things like antibiotic, um, allergies, yeah. you know, like medication, coffee, he'd be like, oh, I'll check the, you know, contraindications. Um, and so it was really cool to like have that experience, right? To be supportive of someone else, but then be supported even for, for the most junior of our members, right? And uh, it's and also about like deconstructing cool. that hero, right? Because yeah. when I hear that story, I'm thinking of that traditional mindset of what an eMERGE doc needs to be, yeah. right? You need yeah. to put on your mask and your cape and come to work as Batman. Yeah. And sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I got to go back to being yeah. Bruce Wayne, right? Yeah. And showing that vulnerability yeah. to your team and accepting help from your junior learners yeah. creates that environment because then you're walking the walk, right? Because yeah. it's hard when you give the spiel at the beginning to say, we're going to create psychological safety. Mm -hmm. But if you portray yourself as Superman, yeah. right? You know, yeah. take a break, you don't pee, you never yeah. kind of sit down, mm -hmm. you never show that there's a human behind yeah. that mask. Yeah. Then it makes it hard for people to trust that. Oh, Kryptonian, right? Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, you can't be Kryptonian. You have to be human. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, uh, well, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, I think this spurs on that we have other topics that are along this line that are a little bit more of the touchy feely, less the algorithm, less the less of like a mnemonic that you have to remember. But I think that this topic is just a good one to talk about with your colleagues. So reach out to us if you have any comments and let us know. I think a lot of them also apply if you're a leader of our one of our groups. Um, creating that psychological safety with your physician group is actually, and your nursing colleagues, like mm. it's all it's all the same arts and science of your brain. So, And I think for yeah. those who like sim, right, this is really oh, the yeah. culture you're creating in simulation. And so yeah. extrapolating that, right? Yes. Like, I mean, even you can rip off that whole pre-brief idea, yeah. right? And oh, bring it back. And then, yeah. and what you're really doing is creating a feedback culture, yeah. which we need to see both in the learning environment and yeah. in our clinical teams as yeah. well. And so hit us up with your ideas, things that have worked, phrases you've used, experiences you've had, because yeah. we'd love to hear about them so that we could use them to improve our practice as well. Yeah, let us know. That's us being psychologically safe. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Thanks. That's awesome. Thanks, guys. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. 
So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>